0: Great God and Father, we're thankful that you are indeed our shepherd and that your Son incarnate, uh, Lord and Savior, is the good shepherd who has come that we may have life and life more abundantly and life everlasting in you. We are thankful for the presence of your Spirit, O God, who indwells every believer. We're thankful for your revealed word We're thankful for the body of Christ to which we belong and as part of whom we enjoy union with the risen Son. And we pray, O God, that You would bless us, that we would daily be mindful of Your presence and Your power and Your purpose in all our lives. Thank you for the providence in the first half of this week for helping us uh, as we faced opportunities and challenges, as we've experienced both joy and sorrow. We pray, O oh God, that you would continue to use every circumstance and experience of our lives for your glory and for the greater progress of the gospel and for our spiritual good, sanctification and encouragement, growth and grace, and also for the blessing of your people. We do pray that you would be with those who are ill, that you would strengthen and help our brothers and sisters who are going through physical trials of various kinds, be with those who are going into surgery even tomorrow. We pray your blessing upon operations and upon procedures and for quick recoveries, O Lord, and that you would ease pain and comfort hearts and strengthen your saints even in periods of trial. We pray, O Father, that your blessing would be upon this congregation and her ministry, but not just our congregation, but every faithful congregation throughout the world. O Lord, that we would be salt and light and leaven, and that we would testify of your truth and the lordship of your Son even to all the nations. We do pray that you would send forth your light and your truth to every land, and that you would transform individuals and families and communities and nations and indeed this world by the glorious gospel of your Son. Son. Bless us now as we open your word together tonight. Open our hearts and our eyes and our minds that we might understand uh, how your word speaks to us in the matters that will come before us uh, to consider this evening. Bless us then with a safe return home. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. We are going to talk a little bit tonight about biblical peacemaking, and um, this is going to be just kind of a one-off, very practical um, Almost a workshop. In fact, that's how this material actually began. Two years ago, uh, I was asked by one of the local Christian schools to come in and do kind of a pre academic year training with the faculty. I've done that a few times uh, at different places. And so this particular year, they asked if I would do some things on conflict resolution, relationships, peacemaking. And so uh, that was kind of the genesis of some of this material, although really much of this material was compiled over the last you know, twenty plus years of ministry and doing pastoral counseling, biblical counseling, and things like that. Um, and so, it's not going to be really a study of a particular passage, but really more kind of an examination of a topic, a theme that we see in Scripture. We even see it in the Beatitudes, as Dane is taking us through a series uh, on Sundays. Uh, in in those uh, statements of our Lord, "Blessed are the peacemakers," Jesus says for they shall be called sons of God. The sons of God, of whom we all are, even the daughters of God are sons, because in the son we inherit as sons. That's the point of the whole daughters of Zelophehad uh, story from your favorite book in the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. I'm sure you just read it over and over and over again. Uh, We all are sons of God, and the sons of God are peacemakers. We are those who are actively concerned with making peace In this world now some of us probably especially at our current cultural moment are not particularly oriented toward peace we're thinking more about gearing up for war we're kind of girding up the loins of our mind we realize that we are in a battle for the survival of our souls our families western civilization as a whole the integrity of the church all of these kinds of things seem to be greatly under fire and up in the air to some extent and yet it is the gospel that ultimately is both the instrument by which we make war in order to claim this world for Christ, and it's also the instrument by which the Holy Spirit brings peace into this world as it bows the knee to Jesus But we talked a little bit about this idea of peace on Sunday morning in the lesson that we did on Christ, uh, Jesus as Lord. Um, We talked about the three kinds of peace that we've mentioned many times before. I'll mention them again here tonight in a minute. Uh, Objective peace with God, uh, internal, personal, subjective peace in our own hearts, and then social peace, interpersonal peace in the relationships that we have with others. And it's really only those who are at peace with God and who have his peace ruling in their hearts that will be able to be peacemakers. You can't be a peacemaker if you are not at peace yourself. You cannot be a peacemaker between others or with others who might be in conflict with you if you are not at peace with God, if you are not at peace in your own heart. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. You're called to peace. And that peace is to rule in your heart and in your mind. This is one of the areas in in my Christian life where I feel the greatest amount of failure. And like, you, you might say, well, that's a pretty long list. I mean, if you're If you're working on this peace thing, I could add a few things to you, pastor, that you might struggle with even more than that. And that's probably true. But this idea of peace ruling in the heart is not something that I always subjectively experience. I don't wake up at two o'clock in the morning just overwhelmed by peace of mind and soul and all of that. I wake up at two o'clock in the morning and I don't go back to sleep. Because I'm not overwhelmed by the peace that's ruling in my heart. Sometimes it feels like anxiety is ruling in my heart. Sometimes it's temptation that's ruling in my heart. Sometimes it's anger that's ruling in my heart. And these are not appropriate for a child of God. We are to have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And that's what enables us to be thankful in all circumstances, to rejoice always. Because we're rejoicing in the Lord and not just in the circumstances that uh, kind of uh, uh, occupy our, our daily existence. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know the passage well, uh, they should write a song about this uh, section of scripture, that there is a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time for both. And a peacemaker is a person who knows what time it is. He knows when it's time to fight and he knows when it's time to stop fighting, when when to be at peace. He understands that sometimes peace can only be achieved by means of war. You have to fight some wars to be able to have peace. Because if you don't fight the war, you won't have peace. You'll have tyranny. And so sometimes you have to fight the war in order to have the peace. But once the war is over, you've got to come home from the war. And you've got to say, OK, the, that, that war is over. And now we need to enjoy peace. And so as a part of being a peacemaker is knowing the battles that ought to be fought. Because a lot of times people who are oriented toward peace, it seems like they're oriented toward peace at the expense of purity. And that might be doctrinal purity, that might be moral purity, that might be, you know, whatever. You, you pick something that they're compromising and say, well, we don't want to fight. We want to be at peace. But you can't make peace with evil. You can't make peace with evildoers. You can't make peace uh, in, the, in the proximity to rebellion. There's a peace that comes only on the other side of conflict. And that really kind of is the first point that we need to think about, is the reality of conflicts in the world that we live in, in the churches that we belong to, and in the heads. There are many of the conflicts that we experience in ourselves, in our relationships, in this world, that we could and should avoid or resolve. But you need to be realistic about the fact that you live in a fallen world, and therefore you are going to have these kind of struggles. And that is why the scripture calls us to be peacemakers is because there's going to be a need to try to make peace in all of these various spheres. Let's talk a little bit about the reasons we do have this kind of conflict, at least in certain respects. If you're still in the book of James, look with me at James chapter 4, just continuing the reading that we did a moment ago. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Remember, just ignore the chapter division. James didn't put it there. He's transitioning, but he's really working out of the ideas that he was speaking about at the end of chapter 3. He asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, before every Calvinist in the room, like, kind of has an attack from from these imperatives in verses 7 to 10, remember, this is not an evangelistic tract. This is not telling the unbeliever how to save himself. This is not telling a person who's dead in his sins how to pick himself up by his bootstraps and make himself worthy of grace and approval by God. But this is addressing the church, those of you who have the Holy Spirit, and it's saying, get a hold of yourselves. Like, like draw near to God. Resist the devil. Put to death your sinful deeds and desires. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He's ready, willing, able. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament and mourn and weep. Humble yourselves. There's some things for us to do. And in order for us to understand the reasons for conflict, or or in order for us to resolve the conflict, we're going to have to understand the reasons for it and, and the way in which we can address it. So James is talking here about some of the reasons that conflict arises, especially in these first several verses in chapter 4. He mentions, for example, unmet expectations. We have these desires. We have these expectations. We have these things that we think we ought to have, but we've never asked God for them. Or we've asked God for them, but with completely the wrong motivations. Or, Or we have this worldly orientation where we're wanting all of the wrong things. Unmet expectations and carnal desires are really the two key reasons that we have conflict. And this is true, not just in terms of conflict with other people. It's true in our conflict with God. I don't know if you've ever ever been frustrated with the Lord. You've ever been resentful. You've ever thought that he could do a better job than he's doing about managing the affairs of your life. Saying, you know, I don't don't want to say that you're not doing this well, Lord, but it seems to me like you should be doing something else here, right? And whether we've ever been that bold, probably not. Let's, let's be truthful. That's what discontent is. You know, when you're discontent in your life, that's what you're saying. Is You're saying, Lord, I, I'm pretty sure I could do a better job of managing my life than you, you seem to be doing right now. Okay. Well, that, that, that's, that's not a good place for us to be. That's, that's because of unmet expectations and carnal desires. What about relationships with other people? Unmet expectations, carnal desires. That's what creates conflict. What about conflicts within my own heart? The anxiety, fear, resentment, discontent, whatever it may be, that I'm struggling with unmet expectations, carnal desires. Sometimes our expectations are misinformed. We expect too much. We expect the wrong kinds of things. And when those expectations are not met, we become disappointed and frustrated and angry. It's okay sometimes to be disappointed. You know, you go, you go to the restaurant and you order the dish that looked amazing and it's not amazing. You say, well, that's, that's a little disappointing, right? Right? I'm not suggesting that you, you know, be void of all emotions whatsoever in your life. But but we have to realize that oftentimes those expectations are what are giving rise to the, the frustration and anger that is resulting from our dissatisfaction or carnal desires, our expectations are really rooted in basic desires which are distorted by our sin. All of the desires that you have been programmed with originally were oriented to something good. They were oriented to the, to the desire for God and to the glory of God and to communion with God. But, but desire gets bent by sin. It gets polluted. It gets distorted. And those desires then lead us to having certain expectations that are unrealistic or unbiblical Now, Buddhism says we can solve all of that. We can achieve peace internally and socially by eliminating desire. If you eliminate desire, then you'll be at peace. But that is not a biblical solution. Christianity transforms our desires in order that they might align with God's truth and His creative work and His redemptive purpose so that desire is ultimately satisfied in Christ and not in the temporal and earthly things that we often look to for their satisfaction. And so sometimes it's, it's in our marriage, it's with our children, it's with our brethren, it's at our job, it's with our health, it's any number of ways in which I have this desire, I need it to be fulfilled, and, and other people and the circumstances of my life just aren't cooperating. And so we have to begin to do some analysis When you find that kind of conflict either in yourself or in a relationship with someone else or in your attitude toward God, there are three things at least that we need to look for. First are those unmet expectations. What what was I expecting? What was I hoping? What did I think was going to happen that has not come about? What is it that has disappointed me or surprised me that has led to this kind of frustration Secondly, look for the carnal desires that are underneath those expectations. I see now, this is what I expected in my relationship with my wife. I'm just using her as an example, like everything's good, right? (laughs) Great, having a great time. Um, I have this expectation in my relationship with my wife, and and that's just not working out. Why why was that something I was expecting from? I mean, obviously it was completely fair. All of my my expectations are completely fair. They're always properly informed. Well, are they really? Or are they arising from some kind of a carnal desire that then, that then has been bent by sin and, and is not properly oriented? And then look a, a step deeper. What is the idol of the heart that is giving rise to that carnal desire, that's giving rise to that expectation that has not been met and that has created frustration and conflict in my life? What am I looking to for my satisfaction that ultimately only Christ can give me? Because your wife cannot satisfy you ultimately. Your children cannot satisfy you ultimately. Your grandchildren cannot satisfy you ultimately. Neither can a career, neither can money, neither can help. There's nothing in this life that can satisfy you ultimately. The things that you're looking to for your satisfaction are supposed to be pointing you to Jesus who gives that true satisfaction. And sometimes if you make an idol out of one of these good things, God will take it away. And he'll say, nope, you're going to be better off without that. I'll just take that away. So you look for the unmet expectation, you dig down and you look at the desires underneath it and you dig down and you often find the idol of the heart that gave rise to it all. Well, One of the things that we can know is that even though we experience conflict in this world, in ourselves, in our relationships with other people, God has a purpose in all of it. I love uh, I love this scene in uh, Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph's brothers come to him after Jacob has died in Egypt and they're afraid that Joseph is going to now exact his revenge. And Joseph says in Genesis 50 and verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he uses the same verb for both clauses. The very same things that Reuben, Simeon, Levi, all of the brothers did out of malice and hatred for harm. The very same things were ordained by God, meant by God for good. And so we know that when that conflict is arising, and again, it may be strictly an internal conflict. More often we're thinking about making peace socially right, with other people. But whenever that conflict arises, whatever the context of it, God has a purpose in it. It doesn't happen otherwise. Job's children are all killed. His his livestock and herds and flocks are are destroyed. His health is wrecked. His wife is not particularly helpful. His friends definitely are not helpful. And God has a purpose. And you can know that. In fact, Paul says you're supposed to know that. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. He goes on to say, Then what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. We're slaughtered like sheep. We're suffering constantly in this world and nothing can separate us from this good love of God and this good purpose. We know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And that doesn't mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean he's going to make all things good. It just means that he's going to make good come from all of these things. But notice in context, verse 29, what is the good that God is bringing out of all things? It's your sanctification. So it's not not always true that God allows trouble to come into your life in order to give you something better temporally. It's not true. It's not true. But it is always true that God allows trouble to come into your life to make you more like Jesus. That's always true. That's what Romans 8 says. And that includes even my sin. It includes the sin of others. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. God always gets his way. My brother sins against me, and I don't understand why, and I want to be at peace with him, and he refuses to be at peace with me, and I'm trying everything to reconcile, and it's just nothing's working. God has a purpose in that. And part of that may be to humble us and to remind us that we're not in control. In the context, God always is working for our conformity to the image of Christ. That is the good that He is aimed at. That is the good that above all things we should desire. And so when I'm dealing with conflict, I need to examine that. I need to meditate on that. I need to, to ask, okay, what is God doing here? I can't always definitively answer that. Don't, I mean, be very careful there. But, but I should be asking that question, Lord, what do you want me to learn here? Um, now, if you're hearing voices you know, whispering in your ear, like that might not be the Lord, right? But, but you should be asking that question, what am I supposed to learn here? How is God using this to test me, to convict me, to sanctify me, to edify me? What am I learning about my lack of humility, my lack of repentance, my lack of faith, my lack of gratitude, my lack of hope? What what idols is he exposing in my life? This is why both Paul in Romans 5 and James in James chapter 1 can say, count it all joy, rejoice when you fall into various trials. Trials of all kinds is the idea. In other words, it doesn't have to just be persecution. It could be illness, it could be financial trouble, it could be social issues, it could be family issues, it could just be internal wrestling that you have. Rejoice! Not because you're suffering, but because you know you would only be suffering if God was at work. You would only be suffering if God has a good purpose for this. He has not brought this trial into your life in order to destroy you. He's brought this trial in order to sanctify you, to refine you. And the way that you refine a Christian is by putting him in the fire. All right, now let's think practically in the rest of our time tonight, just practically about some some principles, some ideas, some some, uh, things that Scripture gives us that we can organize in in different ways in order to help us respond to, to this kind of conflict. There are some unbiblical and inappropriate, and I would say ineffective, ways that we can respond to conflict, and I've tried all of these multiple times. So I can tell you from experience, these just don't work very well. First of all, might be, just pretend like you don't see it. You know? Jesus does not say, if your brother sins against you, pretend like it didn't happen. Now, the reality is, I have known Christians in several churches um, who, who needed to pretend like it didn't happen more often than they did. Because they took that statement by Jesus, if your brother sins against you, and they just applied it to everything. Right? I just don't like the color of your sweater. And so I feel like you've sinned against me. You just need to pretend like that didn't happen, right? You know, get over yourself. But the reality is, if, if your brother has sinned against you, that's a specific thing. That's a transgression. That's a transgression, not just against you, but against God. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't just ignore it, because what tends to happen is things pile up. And by the time you decide to start acting biblically and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, you got quite a list and a lot of anger. It's been cooking for a while. You want to keep short accounts. You want to nip things in the bud. You want to address this right away. It's cowardly to pretend like you don't see it. You're not avoiding conflict. You're avoiding obedience. Jesus says, deal with it. Deal with it in a godly way. And, and we just need to be honest about ourselves. Like Maybe sometimes this is why God's bringing trouble into our life is because I'm a coward and I don't like conflict. And so God keeps putting me in conflict. He says, you're either going to learn bravery and obedience or not. But this is how you're going to learn it. Secondly, an unbiblical response. Dismiss it rather than deal with it. We'll acknowledge it, but we'll say it's okay. It's not okay. Right? Again, when I, I've, I've said this many times, I know, but when, when I sin against my children and I go to them and confess that and ask their forgiveness, the most common response is, it's okay. And I have to say, no, it's not. It's not okay. If it were okay, I don't need to confess it. If it were okay, I don't need your forgiveness. I'm, I'm here confessing it because it's not okay. We don't confess things that are just inadvertent mistakes. We don't seek forgiveness for things that are not a big deal. It's not good, it's not right. It's not healthy, it's not healing, it's not peacemaking, to dismiss it rather than deal with it. You just brush it off. No. Like if your brother has sinned against you and there's some acknowledgement of that, then deal with it biblically. Deal with it responsibly. If they're quick to say, "I am so sorry," then give them forgiveness. You know, brother, I love you. Everything's forgiven. There's no problem here. Thanks so much for for acknowledging that. And please know that it's not a problem. It's completely taken care of. That's far more fulfilling, confirming, wholesome, and healing than simply brushing it off and acting as if nothing really happened. Because, of course, you know it did. And if you leave it there unaddressed, it's going to breed unhappiness and, dis- and discontent. Third, ignore it and hope it will go away. This is where someone's not pretending it didn't happen. They know good and well it happened and they're not dismissing it. They know it's a big deal, but they're just hoping that over time, well, time heals all wounds. You've heard that, right? That's a lie. That's not true. That's not true because we're talking about the kind of conflict that is more like an infection and it's not going to get better on its own. You know, it's just like, I've got cancer in my pancreas, but I'm, I'm hoping that over time it's going to go away. Let me know how that works out for you, right? That, that's the reality is we're dealing with cancer in our heart and in our relationships. It's not a bruise. It has to be killed. All three of these initial responses are a way of empowering bullies and divisive people and harming the vulnerable. And this is, this is like where if we were having a workshop for church leadership, we'd spend some time, right? This is why you must not be in a church where leaders deal with problems this way. Like, pretend you don't see it, dismiss it and say it's not a big deal, hope it goes away over time. That, that is how you empower tyrants. It's usually the tyranny of the minority, but it's how you empower tyrants and bullies and, and divide churches, well, a fourth way that would be an inappropriate way of dealing with it is to tell everybody else about it, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell everyone in the church, and that will ensure that the brother who actually committed the offense is going to eventually know about it, right? Someone, it'll, it'll get to him somehow. Gossip and slander are sins against God and your neighbor, which only lead to greater harm. You're not actually resolving anything. You say, well, I, I've, just got, I've, got to, I've just got to share. No, you don't. If you need counsel, go to your elders. Go to your spouse. I just, I just need to unburden my heart. No, you don't. You need to deal with what's on your heart. Right? I, I just need to vent. Well, like, go in a room by yourself. Like, go vent in the closet. And then come out and, and obey Jesus. Before sharing anything like this, conflict-related, You need to ask yourself why you feel compelled to do so. There are three good questions, I think, that could be helpful here. This is not original with me by any means. You've probably heard these before. Is it true, what I'm about to share? Is it kind, and is it necessary? Am I telling someone who needs to know about this? Sometimes there are things like that. I may need to go to another brother and sister who's involved in this in some way, implicated in this in some way. But is what I'm saying true, kind, and necessary? And if not, I need to shut my mouth. Fifth, adopt the attitude of peace at all costs. Well, we've already dealt with this, but let me just remind you here that people who love peace more than purity or truth will have none of the above. If you love peace more than you love purity and truth, you will not have peace or purity. Heavenly wisdom is first pure. There are biblical responses, though. Biblical responses to conflict that involve Uh, kind of this threefold understanding of peace. I have to have peace in my relationship with God. I can't be a peacemaker or be at peace with anybody until that's intact. That means, by the way, if you are in conflict with someone else and it's exposing and convicting you of issues in your relationship with God, you need to deal with that because you're not going to be able to fix anything else until you deal with it with what God is showing you about your relationship with him. You, you may just need to come like and, and say, you know, I, I'm realizing that I've got a bitterness problem, I've got an anger problem, I've got, a, I've got a worldliness problem that's producing discontent and it's spilling over, but it's not actually a marital problem. It's not actually a problem with my coworkers. It's not, it's not actually anything to do with the church that I belong to. It's, it's, a, it's my problem, it's my heart problem. So peace with God, that enables peace in our hearts, that allows us to pursue peace with other people, right? And so with that understanding in mind, think about some of these principles. We need to have a proper view of sin. We need to be able to distinguish an offense against God and an offense against my ego because most of us are far too easily offended. Not everything that upsets you is an offense against you. Really, we are way too thin-skinned. We are way too easily offended. And even those of us who are Christians and who kind of see the madness of that in the culture around us, it's probably still true to some extent of us that we're just too easily upset. It should be hard to offend us. A person should have to work at it for a while. You should aspire to be unprovocable. I'm not kidding. And we need to try to raise our children this way, where they just are real. It's really hard to irritate them. It's really hard to get under their skin. Now, I'm not this way at all. Like, I mean, you know, it's like when Kirstie found out what I was going to teach tonight, she laughed a little bit. It was a terrible blow to my ego. I'm planning to handle this biblically later tonight. I told her, I said, the fact that other people don't always want to be at peace with me doesn't mean I don't know anything about peacemaking. I can still tell people what I know about it conceptually, right? The reality is we need to we need to be the kind of people who just we don't even want to realize that we've been sinned against. But when we are, then we're prepared to deal with it appropriately. Why am I offended? Like what and I can't, like, I literally can't tell you because it would, it would not be appropriate, right? But as a pastor over the last 25 years, do you know how many counseling situations like urgent, house on fire, pastor, we got to talk right now. And then you hear the offense that's involved, that, that's about to just destroy the, this person's entire life. You think, what? Are we in junior high? Well, yes, I guess we are. Jesus said we should be like children. So why am I offended about this? Did my brother violate God's law, or did he simply step on my pride or my selfishness? I think the world should revolve around me. I think everything should go my way. When it doesn't, it's wrong. Is it really? Or maybe God is ordaining some of those provocations to show me how easily provoked I am, how quickly I become impatient that I have no justification for that whatsoever. What is sin? Our Shorter Catechism teaches us the answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's not any want of conformity unto my wishes. It's lack of conformity to Christ. And I say, well, I just don't think Jesus would offend me the way that some people do. (laughs) I need to have the right perspective on myself as a sinner. We say it every Lord's Day. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You are not the foremost. And that's still true when you offend me. That's still true when you mistreat me. The people that refuse to be at peace with me. I, I have to see myself as a greater sinner than them. I have to. They may be in sin. But my attitude has to be that I am the first and worst sinner that I know because I know the sins of my own heart and I don't know my brother's sin. I really don't. The fruit on that tree may be completely rotten. But I know my heart. And I know what Jesus has forgiven me for. And that has to inform my attitude toward other people's sins. And that brings then to the perspective on my brother's sins. Jesus said, take the Log out of your own eye and you will be able to see clearly, Matthew 7, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think there is a perspectival point to what he's saying. Your sin may be objectively smaller than what your brother has done against you. But if you have something in your eye, it, it feels like it's blinding you. Like an eyelash in your eye, you get, I can't see out of that eye, right? Right? And so, no matter how small and insignificant it may be, in reality, from my perspective, I should should view all of my sins like they're logs. And by comparison, I should view my brother's sin as a speck. Now, speck of wood, like, I mean, from from a large barn, I mean, like, it may be a chunk of wood, but from my standpoint, it's a small, it's a small issue that I'm trying to, to help him see. I need to take responsibility. First of all, for prevention. And that goes back to being unprovocable. refuse to be offended. Cultivate indifference to slights and impoliteness and disappointment. Like, practice this the way that a basketball player practices free throws. Like, deliberately look for opportunities during the week to say, I am going to choose to be indifferent to the disappointments that I have. At the same time, proactively cultivate positive relationships so that you are preventing conflicts. You're building up credit in those relationships with others. You are looking for opportunities actively. How can I bless them? How can I help them? I'm going to look for two or three ways every day to serve my spouse. And I'm going to build up so much credit in that relationship that it's going to be really hard for us to get crossways with one another. Be proactive in prevention. Take responsibility as well when the offense comes. Don't make excuses. Don't offer qualifications. Don't blame shift. Don't deny. Own it. Own it. Even if it was not intentional, even if it was not as significant as another person might have thought. If if, if I've caused you to stumble, if there's some offense that I've committed against you, own it. Don't be defensive. I'm responsible for my attitude and my actions in all circumstances, at all times, no matter what. And by the way, there's a difference between responsibility and guilt. Like as the head of my house, I have to understand I'm responsible for everything that happens in my house. I may not be guilty for half of it. I'm responsible for all of it. I'm responsible for my wife's relationship with the Lord. Now, like, I, I don't really have a lot of control over that, do I? She she may be guilty in terms of her relationship with God, but I'm responsible for it because I'm the head of the marriage. I'm the head of the family. I'm supposed to love her the way that Christ loves the church. And if she is having difficulty in her relationship with Christ, that that may be her fault, but it's my problem. It's my problem to take ownership of and seek to encourage and help address. Take responsibility and reconciliation. You're familiar with this principle. Jesus, in different places in the gospel, says, if you are the offended one, pursue reconciliation with the offender. And if you are the offender, pursue reconciliation with the offended one. The idea is that if both the offender and the offended are serious about serving Christ, they're going to bump into each other, right? Or they're just going to miss each other completely and remain in conflict forever, right? Because they're just, no, that won't happen, right? They're constantly seeking out the other one. And so it doesn't matter whether you are the one who was sinned against or you've sinned against someone else. You are supposed to go after them and seek proactively reconciliation. Let me say a couple things just real quickly for parents, for people who are dealing with, you know, kind of leadership of more than just one relationship. You want to create a garden of yes in your sphere of influence. That, That terminology is not original with me. Create a garden of yes. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, he filled it with all kinds of good things and he put one thing off limits. What a lot of parents do is they put small children into a garden full of forbidden objects. And that is foolish. It's foolish, right? Now, I don't believe in baby-proofing your house. I believe in house-proofing your baby, Right? So you teach the child what they're not supposed to touch, right? And that doesn't mean like leaving loaded firearms, you know, in their bedroom. Use some wisdom, right? Keep the cap off the bleach, you know. No. But but you but you train your child what they're not allowed to touch. But there should be mostly mostly things that they're allowed to touch. And you don't freak out about it. You should create a garden of yes with many good things to enjoy. So that the people under your leadership realize law and discipline brings blessing. It's for our good. It's for our flourishing. The fence is there not to keep us from having fun, but to ensure that we are safe and able to have fun. Right? We are fencing off the, the highway so that, so that the traffic doesn't run over us, so that the playground is a place that we can enjoy. Limit rules... To the absolute minimal number necessary. I think it was from he who shall not be named, Doug Doug Wilson, uh, that years ago, uh, Kirstie and I heard he and Nancy talking about the fact that they had three house rules. I think this is where we got this. No disobedience to explicit commands. No dishonesty, no disrespect. Wherever we heard that, wherever we learned that, those were the rules in our house. Like for however long, for a, a long time. If I give you an order, you obey. You always tell me the truth. The worst thing you can do is lie to me. If you tell me the truth, no matter what you've done, I'm with you. I'll stand by you. I'll support you all the way to, like, jail. Like, you know, I'll walk you in, right? But if you don't tell me the truth, I don't know what is true, and I can't help you. The worst thing, I'm serious. Like, you have to mean this. The worst thing is dishonesty. And that means if they're honest about anything else, you you have to ratchet down your reaction because they were honest. So no disobedience to explicit commands, no dishonesty, no disrespecting your mother because she was my wife first, right? You don't get to disrespect her. Nobody's allowed to. Enforce the rules that you make. Don't make a rule that you won't enforce, and don't be inconsistent when and how you enforce it. Never fail to enforce a rule because you're too lazy to do so, and you just don't want to be bothered. That's the r- now, you say, what does this have to do with biblical peacemaking? You're creating a situation in your home where you're going to have peace with your kids. Right? It's going to be fun. You're going to have good relationships. But this is creating the environment for that. Parents make too many rules all the time. Like, They have all kinds of rules. that you, There's no sense to it whatsoever. Don't make a rule. doesn't need to be there and enforce every rule consistently that you make don't make exceptions but show mercy there's a difference between the two don't make exceptions but show mercy learn the difference and create a culture of honesty and responsibility always make dishonesty worse than the actual offense encourage communication openness ownership reward it in your children or whoever you have a relationship with. All right, last, last part, last few minutes. Um, I've given you several things here in this final section. I, I don't know that anything in any of this uh, study has been original with me, but here at least I'm able to footnote and tell you where I found some of these things over the years. Uh, my friend Greg Strawbridge, who's now gone to be in glory, um, had a an acronym for reconciliation. He used the word people, and I've given you that outlined there along with many proof texts. First of all, P, pursue peace. You have to proactively, intentionally, deliberately do the things that promote reconciliation. Second, examine yourself as you do so, because God may have brought this conflict into your life in order to help you realize something about yourself. You, you are sure that the conflict is there because God wants you to put this other person, like straighten them out. I need to fix you right? But actually, the Lord may be using that conflict to fix you. Third O, offense defined. Make sure that you know what the offense is. Don't, don't be vague. Don't be nebulous. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just upset with you. That's helpful. Like, let me repent of being me. Like, I mean, what, what am I repenting of? What am I supposed to confess? Just like breathing, existing. I don't know, right? No, define the offense. Fourth P, process of confrontation, or not. There are some times where you don't need to, confrontation. You've, you've worked through this and you realize we don't need to make this larger than it is. That this this is this is quickly and easily resolved in some other way. Recognize that there is wisdom to that and that there is a process that Jesus gives us. Luke 17, Matthew chapter 18. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Take two or three others. Tell it to the church, Tell it to the elders, and then they tell it to the church. L, listen in confrontation. I realize it's really hard when you know what the offense was and why they are wrong and that there is absolutely no excuse or defense for it whatsoever. It's really important that you want to be the one to talk. But listen in the confrontation to the other person. And then lastly, E, exercise renewal. In other words, once peace has been made, do everything to proactively build a new, better relationship. Right? So don't just say, okay, well, that's resolved. Good. All is forgiven. And I'm going to hold you at arm's length forever. Right? No, actively cultivate renewal in that relationship. The next one is one that many of you will have seen from the peacemaker ministries that uh, a lot of us have have benefited from in different ways over the years. Uh, It's the seven A's of confession. Confession. We, we should stop apologizing as Christians. Our word apology actually comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense, and that's often what our apologies are. I'm sorry that I wasn't friendly when I came home today, but I'm tired and I was under a lot of stress, which is actually true. I wasn't friendly when I got home today, and it's because I was tired and under a lot of stress. But see, that's, that's like a classical Greek apology, right? I'm defending myself, I'm saying that I'm sorry, but actually, I'm working in all of the reasons you should feel sorry for me. <laughs> See how I did that? That's really good, right? So we should stop that. We should stop apologizing. And again, like if you come home and you're not particularly friendly because you're tired and you're under stress, that's not necessarily a sin that you need to confess, right? We, 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 need, to, we need to go into the family room and get out the Book of Common Prayer and go through the, the penitential service together, right? But, no, no. Recognize when there's an offense and when there's not, but don't, but don't apologize in a way that just kind of deflects uh, responsibility and promotes sympathy for yourself. When there is something to actually apologize for, then don't apologize, confess it. Number one, address everyone involved, all of those who are affected by your sin, whom you've sinned against. Secondly, avoid if, but, and maybe. If I offended you, if you are so thin-skinned that that bothered you, Something like that, right? Third, admit specifically both the attitudes and the actions that were wrong. Again, just don't be vague. That doesn't solve anything. Be very specific. And try to name biblical sins. You know, in this, in this woke world that we live in, um, people get in trouble for things that are not sins all the time. Or if there was a sin, nobody knows what the sin was. It's just like, well, I'm sorry that I, I failed to lead you. What? Like, which of the Ten Commandments does that one go with? I don't know. No, like, when, when you have failed, use biblical language. Be specific about what you've done in your heart and in your actions. Fourth, acknowledge the hurt. E- express your sorrow, your regret that you, that you have hurt someone else. Fifth, accept the consequences. That may mean making some kind of restitution. That may mean that there is some damage in that relationship that's going to have to be repaired over time. Sixth, alter your behavior. Don't keep doing the same thing. Change your attitude. Change your actions. That's going to be inconsistent. That's going to be imperfect. But make a real attempt at it. And seventh, ask for forgiveness. Actually ask for forgiveness. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Say, I've sinned against you and against God. Please forgive me. Right? And then the pause principle, also from Peacemaker Ministries. This is a process for negotiation. Uh, the acronym is PAUSE. So P, prepare. You pray, you get the facts, you seek godly counsel, you develop the options. A, you affirm the relationships, you show genuine concern for the people that are involved. This may be that you're acting as a mediator between two other parties, or it may mean it's a conversation with your spouse, right? This may be how you deal with your spouse. And you want to start, like what does Jesus do at the beginning of the letters to the seven churches, right? Right? He affirms whatever good he can in them. We affirm those relationships. You, we understand interests. We, we recognize, okay, there's conflict here, and there are different expectations, different desires, different needs on each side of this conflict. We need to identify what those are and try to understand them. S, search for creative solutions. That may be prayerful brainstorming. How do, how do we work through this? Your wife and you have hit an impasse. You've got an older child that like you, you you could just put your foot down and say, this is how we're going to fix this. But you're, you're trying to help them learn wisdom. And so how are we, we going to work through this? Where you're going to try and treat them like the adult that they're not yet, but that they're becoming. And prayerfully start brainstorming and working towards some kind of a solution. And then E, evaluate your options objectively and reasonably. Evaluate the way forward. Don't necessarily argue about it, but evaluate it. I've given you some... Passages that you could look at in terms of case studies, conflicts among godly people in Scripture. There's probably a lot of things that you could learn there. But let me close by saying this To be a peacemaker, you first have to be at peace with God, and you have to have God's peace ruling in your heart. And I think a lot of times this is why our peacemaking fails. I mean, if I'm honest, I think this is why I've failed in trying to make peace a number of times in the last 25 years, even as a pastor. I'm trying to make peace at a time when maybe I'm not at peace with God. Maybe there is some conflict in my relationship. There's some sin that I've not repented of. There's something that's not dealt with in my own heart. Or it's that God's peace is not ruling in my heart. I'm I'm too agitated, and I'm not going to be very effective as a peacemaker in that situation. Biblical peacemaking and conflict resolution is not just an academic issue, and it's not just like a practical utilitarian thing. I want you to think about it liturgically. You think about that covenant renewal model that God gives us for worship, of calling us into his presence, cleansing us as we confess our sin, consecrating, communing, and then commissioning, sending us out with a renewed relationship. There's a liturgical pattern to the gospel that needs to be read into our attempts to make peace with ourselves and with others that we have relationships with, and that really is what biblical peacemaking is. It's learning to apply the gospel in our relationships and in our conversations, and I don't know that I do that particularly well at all, and I don't know if any of you do it well. Maybe some of you do it a lot better than I do, and it would have been better for you to teach class tonight, but I was the one teaching tonight, and that is the study, all right? And I hope it will be useful, even if it's just in promoting greater peace in your own heart, and in your relationship with the Lord. Let's bow together and pray. Gracious God, we're thankful for the time that we could spend this evening reflecting upon these principles from your word. We do confess, O Lord, our failures to seek peace, to value peace, to make peace. Uh, We know, Father, that this is often because we are not ourselves at peace, either in our relationship with you or in our subjective, personal, experiential appropriation of that peace that you've given us in Christ. So we pray that you would lead us in repentance for those faults and failings and that you would help us and strengthen us that with humility and with holiness we would pursue peace in our relationships with one another and with all men as much as, uh, as lies within us, O oh God, that we would desire to see the peace of Christ working itself out in all of our relationships. We pray that you'd bless us as we return to our homes, that you'd continue to bless us in our work this week and that you would prepare our hearts for the Lord's Day when we will gather again and worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.